Turn in your Bibles tonight, 2 Samuel chapter number 9, 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to read a lot of scripture just within the process of preaching tonight, and I think that's a good thing, amen. It's it's better for me preaching. The more scripture I read, the, the, the closer I'll hang to it, amen. And so uh, I think it's a good thing to read lots of scripture in the preaching of the Word of God. 2 Samuel chapter number 9, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Verse number one, the Bible says, and David said, is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him unto David, the king said unto him, art thou Ziba? And he said, thy servant is he. And the king said, is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son, which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then king David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father. And thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? Then the king called to Ziba Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertained to Saul and to all his house. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him, and thou shalt bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread alway at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then said Ziba unto the king, According to all that my lord the king hath commanded his servant, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all that dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants unto Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table and was lame on both his feet. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for the word of God. I thank you that it's true. Lord, I thank you that there's no admixture of error within it, but that as we approach the inspired, inerrant, holy, preserved Word of God, that we can read it with confidence, knowing that we have in it not just the Word of God as an ideal, but the very words of God explicitly. Help us, Lord, to show reverence to the Word of life, and help us to allow it entrance into our hearts. We'll be sure to thank you for what's accomplished. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I suppose that 2 Samuel chapter 9 is one of my favorite chapters in the entirety of the Word of God. I just love to read about this poor, broken, downcast, downtrodden, forgotten about fellow by the name of Mephibosheth, uh, who is lifted up by the grace of God. I love how David says it in verse number 3. He wants to show the kindness of God unto him. If ever there was a phrase that summarized the grace of God, it's that phrase, the kindness of God. You know, when somebody's kind to you, you don't ever think about them doing something that you've earned or something that you deserve. 
You just think about something that's come out of the goodness of their heart and out of the mercy and grace of their heart. I'll tell you what God did when He saved me. He showed me kindness. I didn't deserve that kindness. I wasn't worthy of that kindness. I hadn't earned that kindness. But by His grace, He showed kindness. He should have shown judgment to me. He should have uh, shown wrath to me. But He showed kindness to me and lifted me up out of my sin-sick condition, my lost condition, and saved me and transformed my life. And I love to read about Mephibosheth and how that David shows the kindness of God unto him. I love to read about where he was found, Lodabar, the place of no bread. Man, that reminds me of where God finds all of us when we need to be saved. We're in the place of no bread, no sustenance, no satisfaction, no help, and no hope. When he finds him, he's in a broken condition. The Bible describes elsewhere for us how that Mephibosheth came to be lame on both of his feet. It says that uh, the day that Saul and Jonathan uh, were killed, that the nurse that was carrying a little five-year-old Mephibosheth was fleeing and running, and that she tripped and she fell and dropped the child. And the, the injury of it was so traumatic that it left him crippled, it left him lame and unable to walk on both of his feet. One preacher said it this way, he was injured in the fall, amen? I think that's a good description of mankind, don't you? Mankind was crippled in the fall, injured in the fall. When Adam ate of the fruit in the garden, mankind was uh, had a part in his fall and mankind was crippled and helpless through the fall. I love to read about uh, the 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 reason David does this, the Bible says he does it for Jonathan's sake. And, you know, in many ways, if, if we were to look at this as a type in Scripture, Jonathan would be a picture of Jesus Christ and how that God, being David, shows his kindness unto Mephibosheth. Not for Mephibosheth's sake, but for the sake of Jonathan. What a picture that is of the Lord Jesus Christ being the source and the uh, wellspring of the grace of God for us. I even love to read about this fellow Zeba. Zeba is a complex character in the Bible. Later on he shows up and he doesn't really act in a very gracious manner. But in this passage, he's a reminder both of the Holy Ghost and also of the soul winner. Because whenever David says, is there anybody? Zeba says, oh yes, there's somebody. Let me go and get him for you. Let me go where he's at and tell him about who you are and what you can do for him. Boy, what a picture that is of the Holy Ghost of God. I didn't know where I was until uh, the Holy Ghost showed me where I was. I didn't know how messed up I was until he showed me how messed up I was. I didn't know there was a hope and, and help and an answer until he showed me that there was. And then it also reminds me of the soul winner. Hey, listen, I didn't know I was lost, but somebody told me I was lost. Praise God for the day somebody told me I was lost. Uh, it took the Holy Ghost telling me, but I'm convinced of this, it was a lot easier for the Holy Ghost to tell me because other folks had told me. If I just had to find a Gideon Bible laying in a hotel drawer somewhere and start thumbing through it and stumble my way to some understanding of my lost condition, I'm so ignorant it might have took a thousand years. But instead, somebody that loved me and cared about me showed me that I was lost. I love to read about Zeba, man. I love to read about how the grace of God comes rolling into Lodabar in that uh, cripple's cart and picks him up, carries him, sets him at the king's table, transforms his life and, and does a wonderful work. The Bible describes how that he seated at the king's table was treated as one of the king's sons. And what a picture that is of salvation. Uh, that we are set and, and reckoned just exactly like we belonged there. I'll tell you this, I don't belong at God's table. But by God's grace, I get to be at God's table. I love to read about it, man. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Word of God. But I'm not going to preach on it tonight. Instead, I wanted you to read that with me. 
Because I wanted you to understand a statement that David makes in verse number one. And he echoes it again later on when he is talking to Ziba. The Bible says this. David said, is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? And notice these next three words for Jonathan's sake. Verse number seven, David said to Mephibosheth, fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness. And here we find it again, for Jonathan, my father's sake. You know, I began to think about this moment in Mephibosheth's life. And whenever David says to Mephibosheth, I am showing you kindness for your daddy's sake, he is not merely denoting that he loved Jonathan and Jonathan was a dear and precious friend to him and he's doing in memoriam of Jonathan's memory a, a an act of kindness. But David is actually declaring and proclaiming that a covenant that had been made, a promise that had been made, had now with this very action been brought to fruition and that a payment that was owed had now been paid on his behalf. You see, when he says he's doing this for Jonathan's sake, he's not just saying, I loved your daddy and so I'm going to be good to you. But rather he's saying, many years ago I made a promise to your father that I would be good to him and I would be good to his children after he was gone. And now today I'm fulfilling that promise because of something that transpired many, many years ago. And I began to think about the relationship that Jonathan and David had. And I began to think about this moment. And I began to look through my Bible and try to find when this moment was. And lo and behold, if you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 20, you'll actually find when this moment that this covenant or this promise takes place. A little bit of the backdrop of what's been transpiring. David has been favored and promoted and elevated and exalted by God. And he has drawn the jealous ire of King Saul, Jonathan's father. And Saul has sought vehemently to persecute, yea, and even kill David on many occasions. Part of the problem with Saul's plan, though, is that his son Jonathan is the very dearest of friends with David. And it's interesting because it seems as though there's this moment where David is saying, your father wants to kill me, Jonathan. Jonathan saying, surely my father would never, ever do that. And so Jonathan devises a plan whereby he can know and divine what his father's intentions are concerning David. There's a feast that's coming up and David will be expected to be at that feast. And David believes that uh, Saul has certain designs to assassinate him at this three-day feast. And so David tells Jonathan, I'm going to be absent from that feast. And when your father notices I'm not there, he says, I want you to notice how he responds. And if he responds and he is indifferent, doesn't mind, is not bothered, you'll know that he doesn't mean me any harm. But if he is enraged, if he is wrathful unreasonably, then you'll know that we have thwarted your father's plans. And listen to what the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 11. The Bible says, Jonathan said unto David, come and let us go out into the field. They went out, both of them, into the field. And Jonathan said unto David, O Lord God of Israel, when I have sounded my father about tomorrow any time or the third day, and behold, if there be good toward David, and I then send not unto thee and show it thee, 
the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it please my father to do thee evil, then I will show it thee and send thee away that thou mayest go in peace and the Lord be with thee as he hath been with my father. Thou shalt not only while yet I live show me the kindness of the Lord that I die not, but also thou shalt not cut off, uh, cut off thy kindness from my house forever. This is when Jonathan is speaking. Thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, every one from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. Jonathan caused David to swear again because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Now, that's an interesting passage to me. Jonathan and David say, we're entering into this covenant. And Jonathan looks at David and says, I want you to promise me that if I'm a friend to you, and if I show this matter to you, that you will never cut off your kindness toward me. But not only towards me, you have to promise that once I'm gone, you'll be good to my kids and to their kids. And time immemorial, the house of David will be a friend to the house of Saul. And I began to think about Jonathan as a father. You know, one of the things that's apparent when you look at the life of Mephibosheth, and you noticed it in our text earlier, that the Bible goes out of its way to tell us that Mephibosheth had a son by the name of Micah. And if you study it carefully, there's not a lot said about him, but the Bible goes out of its way to tell us about the existence of this young man. And when you then begin to look at Mephibosheth as a character and as a father, it becomes pretty apparent that despite all of his flaws and all of his failures, Mephibosheth was a very dedicated and diligent father. wonder where he learned how to be a daddy like that. You know, I would guess this, that Jonathan, having as tender a heart as he does toward David, was probably a very loving and affectionate and diligent father to Mephibosheth. When Mephibosheth is brought in before David, man, he's got some manners. Somebody taught him manners. When he comes in before David and dwells before David, the Bible describes a time later on whenever David is driven out in exile because of Absalom's rebellion and how that Mephibosheth remains fiercely loyal to David. Wonder where Mephibosheth learned loyalty. You see, here's what I'm getting at. I'm saying Jonathan, I think, was a very good father. I think he probably loved his son Mephibosheth. I can imagine this young boy still whole and still healthy, being held by his daddy, bounced upon his knee. I I can imagine him with a little toy bow and arrow set and his daddy helping him fire those arrows. I can imagine him telling him about the goodness of God and about the victories that God's given Israel over her enemies. I think he was probably a wonderful father. And that bears out later on in Mephibosheth's life. But can I say this to you this evening? When we read our text, one of the things that becomes apparent to me is that Jonathan did more for his son Mephibosheth on this day that he pledged his life and heart to David than he did in every other moment of parenting that God allowed him to experience. Jonathan did more for his son Mephibosheth by loving David than he even did by loving Mephibosheth. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight, a father's greatest gift. Man, I want to be a good father to my children. I know you want to be a good parent, good mother, a good father to your children. You may say, well, preacher, my kids are up and grown and having babies of their own. 
Well, then you've learned that when they have babies of their own, you don't lose your love uh, for them babies. You just love them more, amen, because you don't have to deal with their snotty noses. And whatever the element of life or walk of life you find yourself in, I trust that everybody in this room, whether you have children by blood, whether God's just given you a, a voice in someone's life, whatever the terms of your relationship may be with the young people that you are surrounded by, I think we would all say this, Preacher, I want to do my very best for them. I want to pour into their life and see them grow up and know the Lord Jesus Christ and walk in victory and walk and live in the will of God. And I don't know about you. I mean, listen, there's hundreds of books written every year to try to teach us how to be effective at what we're doing. But I think we have a beautiful and simple truth here in the Word of God about the greatest thing that we as parents or as grandparents, as aunts, as uncles, as cousins, maybe just as a friend to other families can do to pour into the lives of young people. In other words, I would say this, the greatest thing you can do for your kids is to learn to love the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest, and I'm not against the other things, put aside for their college. Waste the money on that. God bless you. That's wonderful. Buy them all the nice things. I'm not against it. I think it's wonderful. I mean, listen, I hope they have the, I hope they have the, the real Nikes, the one with the swoosh that faces the right way instead of the ones I had growing up. Amen. I, I, I hope, I hope they got the real Legos, the ones that all fit together instead of the ones you got to use the hammer on. I mean, I hope you do everything for them that you possibly can. But I'm telling you this, if you do all that for them and you neglect your walk with God, you have done a great disservice your children or your grandchildren. You see, when I see Jonathan's relationship with David, it reminds me of how I can effectively parent and even beyond parenting. And I believe that there's a great void and absence and famine of parenting in the day we live in. Uh, Let me just say, parent is not just an uh, an adjective. It's a verb. It's not just a noun. It's a verb. It's an active pursuit. We parent actively. It's something we ought to do deliberately. We don't just cohabitate with our kids. We actively parent them and raise them and nurture them and teach them. But even beyond the active parenting that you do, you may be the best parent in the world, but if you're not walking with God, you're doing a great disservice to your child. And Jonathan teaches us how that we can make an impact in our young people's lives for the Lord in a meaningful way. Now, I just want you to notice three simple truths and we'll be done tonight. Let me say, number one, I want us to notice... David and Jonathan, and I wanted you to notice as we walk through their life and their relationship, I want you to know that the preeminent thing about Jonathan was this truth and this fact, he loved David. When you go through their relationship, one of the things that the Holy Ghost uses is a touchstone over and over. And in fact, three times in the Word of God, the Bible says it in a particular way. And on multiple occasions, the Bible praises and lauds the deep and abiding love that Jonathan had for David. What kind of love was this? I'd say number one tonight, it was a selfless love. Look with me in 1 Samuel chapter 18. We get a glimpse into sort of the initial meeting of Jonathan and of David. This is shortly after the slaying of the giant Goliath. And David is brought great reputation and great fame through this act. And he is brought into the royal household and made a part of the palace life. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel 18, 1, says, It came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Down in verse 3, 
We're told it again. It says Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. The passage we just read a moment ago in 1 Samuel 20:17 says it again. Jonathan caused David to swear again because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. You know what all that means? It means that the love that Jonathan had towards David was not a selfish or self-interested love, but it was a selfless love that gave the preeminence to David above all other things in his life. A man can't love anything as much as he loves his own soul except by the grace of God. You know, we're told in society today that one of the great, uh, one of the great, uh, problems in, in, in sort of psycho, psychoanalytical culture and one of the great, great psychological problems of people today is that they have low self-esteem. We hear that all the time. People have low self-esteem, not enough self-care in our society. You know, the Bible says that's not true. The Bible says that our problem is not too low a self-esteem, but our problem is too high a self-esteem. The Bible says no man ever yet hated his own flesh. The fact of the matter is, for Jonathan to love David as his own soul is to give him a place of preeminence in his life and to put self aside and to prioritize David above all other People. Can I tell you in your life, one of the best things that your kids will ever see is see you selflessly love the Lord Jesus Christ. If you can teach your kids what true biblical Christianity is by setting self aside and loving Jesus more than you love your own self, you will have taught them a great and profound truth. Many Christians today are crippled in their walk with God because they just can't learn to love God more than they love themselves. Oh, they love God more than they love other folks. They love God, a great many of them, even more than they love the world cult and culture. Uh, They love God more than they love money. They love God more than they love popularity. But they don't love God more than they love their own selves. Jonathan, you know why his love made such an impact on David? Because David could tell in it that Jonathan loved him more than he even loved his own self. By the way, we'll see later on. I don't want to trample over my next sermon points. But here in a little while, we'll see that David, that Jonathan imperiled his own life to protect David. Evidently, Jonathan thought David was the most important person in the whole world and loved him deeply. And listen, if your kids can't look at your life and see that you believe the Lord Jesus to be the most important person in the whole world, then something's wrong in your testimony before them. They need to be able to tell, man. They need they need to look at our life and tell that we love them more than Dollywood. That we love Him more than the ball field. That we love Him more than than vacation. That we love Him more uh, than work. That we love Him more than a bigger paycheck. That we love Him more than social standing. That we love Him more uh, than the various material things that the world dangles before us. Our kids, we need to teach them by our very example what it is to love the Lord selflessly. I would say it was a selfless love. Look again here in 1 Samuel 18, verse number 3. The Bible says this, Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David, and his garments even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. Now, as we noted this morning in the preaching, 
uh, that those of the royal household, if they stripped themselves down to their linen clothes, they were not nude and they were not immodest, just as David was not whenever he danced before the Lord. And there's nothing lewd that is being implied in the passage here. All it's merely saying is that Jonathan took that royal clothing that was his by right of his status and sonship and position within the nation of Israel. He took all that was his glory, all that was his gain, all that was his self-protection, and self-interest. He took all of those things and laid them aside and gave them unto David. This was a ceremonial, significant, symbolic act. What he was saying is this, David, I'm willing to give you everything and I will yield to you the very position of preeminence in my life. David, I'll do without so that you have what you are worthy of. I would say this, it was not only a selfless love, it was a sacrificial love. Now, let me just remind you, Mephibosheth didn't see none of this. He's a teeny tiny boy at the time, but it didn't change the fact that the very testimony of Jonathan with David made an eternal impact. And I'll say this, your kids won't always see the things you do for God. But you know who does see the things you do for God? God sees the things that you do for God. And here's what Jonathan says. He says, I'll do without so that David can have what he's worthy of. And let me say in our life that our love of the Lord ought to be a sacrificial love. Whoever told you that living for Christ didn't mean giving things up lied to you. I've spent a great deal of, 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 of the 12 years of ministry and of pastoring just trying to get people to understand this fact that this prosperity gospel that is so consistently peddled in society that makes Bible Christianity seem as though it is an exercise in convenience, seems as though it is a pathway or conduit to prosperity, is in no way resembling of Bible Christianity. And the fact is, if you live for Jesus Christ, you are going to have to give some things up. If you live for Jesus Christ, you are going to have to do without some things that your flesh wants. If you live for Jesus Christ, there are going to be some things you have to turn your back on. I'm glad I was saved by the grace of God. And it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by His own mercy that He saved us. But to live like a saved person, to walk with God, to have a life that is consecrated and has a testimony that's meaningful and powerful for the glory of God is very much going to mean taking the robe of your own self-interest off and laying it at Jesus' feet. He takes all that He has and all that denotes His status and just lays it at the feet of David and says, This all belongs to you. One of the greatest things we can do for our kids and one of the greatest things that they can see is they can see us prioritize Jesus above ourselves and above all other things. I would say it was a sacrificial love. But then listen to what the Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Now in this passage, Jonathan and Saul are both dead. They've been slain on the battlefield. And David is singing a song of mourning over these two individuals. And he says in, in 2 Samuel 1.26, I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. Now, a lot of people have tried to take this verse and extrapolate something rude and crude and lewd from it. But if you just read very plainly what your King James Bible says, you'll see that there is nothing that is carnal or nothing that is lewd or inappropriate about it. He doesn't say, you love me like women love me. He says, you love me in a way deeper than any wife that I've ever had has shown love to me. David was a man that had several wives. I'm sure some of them were probably sweet, and I'm sure some of them gave him plenty of trouble. 
And some of them would be sweet if they was the only one, but you get three or four of them together and it just ruins the whole bunch. Amen. <laughs> he had some good ones and he had some bad ones. And when he says that Jonathan's love was, was, was precious unto him, was wonderful, passing the love of women, he's saying this, that Jonathan loved me in sincerity and in depth and in truth more than any wife that I've ever had. I would say it this way. Jonathan's love of David, it was a selfless love and it was a sacrificial love, but it was also a supreme love. It was a love that passed all other things. We often think of devotion and the measure of it as being within matrimony. I I think it is appropriate and biblical that we ought to love our spouses more than we love anyone other than God. You ought to love your spouse more than you love your kids. That's the biblical order of things. You ought to love your spouse more than you love your grandkids. It's a biblical order of things. I I could say it about a million other things, but don't those seem to be the things most people struggle with? Is loving our spouse more than we love our children or our grandchildren or, or someone that's precious to us in our life? And it's the biblical order of things that your love towards your spouse be supreme in every way excepting that of your love of God. And here in our text, whenever David says, he loved me more than my wives have ever loved me, what he's saying is this, that his love transcended that which was considered to be the very apex of human relationship. He loved me more than the folks that loved me the most in life. And I'll tell you, the greatest thing you can do for your child is love God more than you love them. I'm going to say it again. The greatest thing you can do for your child is to love God more than you love them. If you try to love them more than you love God, you're not really loving them the way they deserve to be loved. Uh, oftentimes, when, when we allow ourselves to make uh, idols of our children in our life, we will try to mask that as though we are doing that out of, out of interest to them or compassion to them or out, out of love for them. But the truth is, the greatest way you can love them is by loving God more. If you love them more than you love God, you're loving them less than you would if you loved God more than you loved them. Here in this passage, What David is saying is, Jonathan loved me more than he loved anything else in life. I would say this, that uh, I bet on the day that the the cart of Ziba rolled into Lodabar, I bet that Mephibosheth was sore, sore glad that Jonathan loved David more than he loved him. What a mess he would have been in if Jonathan had prioritized. You say, well, preacher, I don't think that would have been likely. Well, sure, we'll see it here in just a moment. But Jonathan essentially yields the throne to David. Now, you understand, he gave Mephibosheth's throne to David. When he gives that throne to David, Mephibosheth is a healthy little boy. It's not till Jonathan dies that he is crippled. And he was giving Mephibosheth's throne to David. But you know, when he gave Mephibosheth's throne to David, he gave a seat at David's table back to Mephibosheth. I'll tell you, the day that you dethrone your kids and put Jesus on the throne of your life is the day that you get them an inch closer to a place at the king's table. I, I, I think it was his love of David that had made a difference. But then I would say, not only his love of David, but number two, I think his loyalty to David probably made a difference and led to this scene in Second Samuel chapter 9. Jonathan was fiercely loyal to David. When it was not easy to be, Loyal to David. I mean, you understand, it was easy to be loyal to David whenever David was in Saul's good graces. But David spent the majority of his early years not in Saul's good graces, but rather on his hit list. 
And Jonathan could have very easy just ducked his head and tried to go along to get along and not make any waves. But that didn't seem to be who Jonathan was. There's three sort of pivotal moments in regards to his relationship with Saul and his relationship with David, his relationship with his friend David and his relationship with his father Saul. Look with me in 1 Samuel 19, 1 Samuel chapter 19. Look with me at the first three verses. The Bible says this, And Saul spake to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan's son delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, seeketh to kill thee. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take heed to thyself until the morning, and abide in a secret place, and hide thyself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where thou art. And I will commune with my father of thee, and what I see, that I will tell thee. Now, you understand, this moment may seem innocuous, it it may seem innocent, it may seem trivial. But in this moment, he committed a deep act of treason. His father said, we're going to kill David. He's an enemy of the state. We're going to kill him. Jonathan said, I won't kill him. I'm going to go warn him so that he can escape. In doing so, he defied the king. In doing so, he defied the throne. In doing so, here's what he did. Let me say this. In, in speaking of his, of his loyalty to David, we see, number one, that he committed to David. He chose David over Saul. By this act, he crossed a line that could never be uncrossed. And he said, if I have to choose, if I'm made to choose between my father and between David, it is no contest, it is no debate, it's not something I've got to pray about or meditate about. I cast my lot in with David. He will be my king. Your kids need to see you committed to Christ. Why would we think they'd grow up to be committed to Christ if we've not showed them what it means to be committed to Christ? Why would we think that they would ever choose Him over the Saul's of the world if we've not chosen David over Saul? The Bible says He told David. Back then it took a little more to commit treason. You couldn't just go on a tour somewhere. You had to really commit treason. And He commits treason. And He casts His lot in and He says... I'm now with David, no matter what may happen. One of the greatest things you can do for your family. Hey, listen, uh, husband's one of the greatest things you can do for your wife. Uh, Daddy's one of the greatest things you can do for your children. Mama's one of the greatest things you can do for your children and for your husbands is to choose Christ above all. Make your commitment clear to Him and make Him the preeminent thing in your life. I see that He committed to Him. But then look at the next verses in in verses 4 and 5. The Bible says this, And Jonathan spake good of David unto Saul his father, and said unto him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he hath not sinned against thee, and because his works have been to thee word very good. For he did put his life in his hand and slew the Philistine, and the Lord wrought a great salvation for all Israel. Thou sawest it and did rejoice. Wherefore then wilt thou sin against innocent blood to slay David without a cause? 
You see the two sides to Jonathan's commitment here. In his heart, he casts his lot with David and he goes and in secret discloses that Saul has evil intentions against him. But now standing here in the field, he challenges his father. And listen, some of the things he says to Saul, they may seem like they're said in delicacy and in diplomacy, but some of the things he said are really a challenge. He looks at him and says, don't sin against your servant. He's looking at the king. He's looking at at his father. And he's saying, what you're doing is sin. What you're doing is wrong. Casting your lot against David is a mistake. He's done nothing to you. He is innocent blood and you are persecuting him. I'd say it this way. Not only do we see that he committed to David, but we see that he confessed David before those that hated him. He looks at his father and he said, David's done nothing to you. David's only been good to you. David's only shown love to you. David's only shown devotion to you. I would say this, one of the greatest things our kids can see in us is a bold public testimony of of affection, love, and loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's no wonder kids are brought up to believe that we live in a secular world uh, because we have conditioned them to believe that the world is a secular place. Uh, We have, instead of teaching them that it is normal to talk of the goodness of God, we've taught them that it is normal to, to withhold from praising God publicly. We have literally conditioned them to be embarrassed over their testimony instead of encouraging them to talk of it and to speak of it often. I think that Jonathan did a great thing. It was a dangerous thing that he did. But no doubt, when David knew of it, it made a difference in his heart. I see that he committed to him. I see that he confessed him. But then notice in chapter number 20 with me. Look at verse 34. Now, the Bible describes this feast that takes place and uh, how that this was used as sort of an acid test to, to determine Saul's intentions against David. And so they go to this feast and David, of course, is is not present there. And and the Bible says that that the first day Saul notices that he's not there, but he don't say anything. He just says, well, surely he's unclean. In other words, he's ceremonially defiled and he wasn't able to come. Second day rolls around and David's still not there. And so he looks at Jonathan. And he says, where's the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite? Where's David at? He's supposed to be here. His seat is empty. Jonathan says to his father, says, well, he he begged leave of me to go to a feast that his family uh, gets together and, and has dinner on the grounds. And he brings the deviled eggs and said, you know, he had to be there. And and so I, I gave him leave to go back to Bethlehem to this yearly sacrifice. And Saul just loses his mind because his plan was destroyed. And he begins to berate uh, Jonathan, and, and he begins to call Jonathan an, an illegitimate son and, and essentially say that Jonathan has brought great shame uh, to the throne and begins to disgrace David and, and begins to slander David. And listen to what the Bible says in 1 Samuel twenty thirty four. When Jonathan hears this, the Bible says, So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did eat no meat the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had done him shame. I see in his loyalty to David, I see he committed to him and he confessed him, but I see that he consecrated David in his heart. In other words, he said, ain't nobody going to talk about David bad in my presence, even his own father. So much so that he gets up and here's what he does. He breaks fellowship with those that hate David and that would slander him. One of the things our children and grandchildren need to see in us is a commitment to walk with those that love the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Listen, I understand we live in a broken world and how can we help a world that will not touch? How can we reach people that we will not uh, reach out to? And I'm aware of that. But understand this, every influence we allow into our home and into our house, every relationship that we permit in some way provides commentary about our opinion of Jesus Christ. Listen, we ought to we ought to do everything we can to reach people with the gospel. But we should not sacrifice the testimony of our walk with God upon the altar of misguided evangelism either. We should ensure that in our life, hey, listen, we can reach them, but they're not going to slander our Lord in front of us. They're not going to trash our Lord in front of us. We're not going to tolerate the, the, the nastiness and the lewdness, and we're not going to tolerate the hate and the vitriol and And one of the ways we set an example to our children is by esteeming Jesus Christ highly in our life in saying that we will not walk with those that would do shame unto Him. It matters, man. Your kids see what your standard is of relationships in life. And they learn what is normal or what form of normal that they're going to operate within by watching you. I want you to notice not only his love of David and his loyalty to David, but finally, and I'm done tonight, I want you to consider for a moment his life for David. Now, you might say to yourself, well, preacher, he didn't live his life for David. I mean, he he was the king's son, and and, and he had responsibilities. And, and when he died, he didn't die defending David. He, he died at the hand of the Philistines. So how did he give his life for David? Well, I want you to notice it here in our text. Look with me again at 1 Samuel 20. Bible says in verse 3, David swear moreover and said, Thy father certainly knoweth that I have found grace in thine eyes. And he saith, Let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, there is but a step between me and death. Then said Jonathan unto David, I like this, Whatsoever thy soul desireth, I will even do it for thee. Now in the opening verses of this chapter, Jonathan goes to David and says, well, I don't think my father's going to kill you. If he was, I would know it and he would have showed it to me. And and David says, well, Jonathan, I I appreciate that, but he would not show it to you because he knows that you love me and he knows that you would tell him. And instead, he has has concealed this from you. And he's saying, Jonathan, there's a step between me and death. In other words, he's saying, Jonathan, you don't know what is true and you don't know what is right, but I do. Jonathan could have looked and said, well, David, who do you think you are? I know my father. I'm a man of war just like you are. I know what dangers are out there. I'm not an imbecile, I know. But instead, here's what he did. He humbled himself and he said, All right, David, what do you want me to do? Anything you want me to do, I'll do it for you. How did he give his life for David? Well, I'd say, number one, he served David. He said, Whatever you want out of me, that's what you'll get. If you want me, and I believe with my whole heart, and David would have never asked this. We see that by David's character elsewhere in Scripture. But I believe when when Jonathan said, whatsoever thy soul desires, I think if David had said, go and kill your father, and probably that's what Jonathan thought he was going to be asked to do. I mean, you understand David saying, it's me or him. There's a step between me and death. It would not have been irrational or unreasonable if David had looked at Jonathan and said, well, kill your father and save me from him. I think Jonathan, he's literally willing to take a life if he has to. He's willing to do anything that it takes. If he had slain his father, the king, it wouldn't have wound up with him on the throne. It would have wound up with him on the gallows. It would not have meant a long, fulfilled life for him. It would have meant the company of Saul slaying him. 
Here's what he's saying. David, I will lay down my life for you. I will do anything for you. I wonder what the Lord thinks of a God that we don't think enough of to serve. Wonder what, I wonder what our kids think of, of a God that we don't think enough of to serve. Wonder what their opinion is of that God. Wonder what our kids think about a God that's only worth one or two Sunday mornings a month to us. Wonder what our kids think of a God that's only worth the table scraps of our entertainment budget. Wonder what, I wonder what our kids think about a God that's, that's only worth every occasionally praying to and only rarely speaking about. Wonder what they think about a God like that. I'd say this, they probably don't think very much of him. Whatever you portray of a, of a healthy relationship with God, that's not the epitome of what your kids will know about walking with God. That's the baseline of what they'll know about walking with God. And Jonathan, in pledging his life to David, here's what he taught his son. And I don't know how much Mephibosheth knew, but if he knew about this, here's what he would have learned from it. David's a man worth living for and worth dying for. I would say this, he served David with his life. But then... There in 1 Samuel chapter 20, the Bible says this, and this is sort of, this is Saul railing against Jonathan because he believes that Jonathan has betrayed him. And it says in verse 31, this is Saul speaking to his son Jonathan. He said, as long as the son of Jesse liveth upon the ground, thou shalt not be established nor thy kingdom. Wherefore now send and fetch him unto me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul his father and said unto him, wherefore shall he be slain? What hath he done? And Saul cast a javelin at him to smite him, whereby Jonathan knew that it was determined of his father to slay David. We often talk about all the javelins that Saul threw at David. But on this occasion, he throws one at his own son. He's so enraged against Jonathan that he tries to kill him because of Jonathan's devotion and loyalty to David. I would say this, not only did Jonathan serve David, he suffered for David. Here's the funny thing about it. Uh, you stay loyal to David long enough, the people that wanted to kill David are going to want to kill you. I mean, you understand that he didn't throw that javelin at Jonathan because he hated Jonathan. He threw that javelin at Jonathan because David wasn't standing there. And that was the next best thing. And I will say our Christianity ought to be such that the world hates us like it hates Christ because we're the next best thing. And your kids ought to see in your life that you're willing to take a stand and to suffer, to lose friends, to lose relationships, to lose opportunities, to lose jobs, to lose things in your life if that's what it takes to take a stand for Jesus Christ. What we're doing is we're we're building currency in our kids' hearts concerning the things of God. We're laying a value upon those things to them. And they'll look at it and say, you know, I don't know everything about life, but I know Daddy loved church enough that he was willing to go no matter who got angry. I don't know a lot about life, but I know that Daddy loved the Lord, that he was willing to talk about him no matter who it made angry. I don't know much about life, but I know my Daddy loved the Lord, that he would serve God no matter what it cost him. If we're willing to suffer, we're building up currency concerning the things of God in the hearts and minds of our children. And then I want you to notice uh, one more thing. First Samuel chapter 23. This is the last thing I'll say I'll be done. Look at verse 16 with me. You haven't had to travel far. You ain't, you ain't got much of a gas bill run up. Chapter 23, verse 16. This, by the way, was the last time that Jonathan uh, would have seen 
would have seen David. The Bible says this, Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the wood and strengthened his hand in God. And he said unto him, Fear not, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find thee, and thou shalt be king over Israel, and I shall be next unto thee, and that also Saul my father knoweth. You understand that the person saying this is the presumed heir and future king of Israel. I mean, if he had slayed David in the woods, and God would have judged him for it, of course, but just through human intuition, if he had slayed David in the woods, there was no one else to challenge his throne. And when he looks at David and he says, David, one of these days you're going to be king, and I'll be next to you. The only way that David could have stood there and Jonathan been next to him is if Jonathan was willing to step aside and to give him the crown. I would say this. How did he give his life for David? Well, he served him and he suffered for him. But fundamentally, he stepped aside for David and let David be the king. By the way, the king, not just over Israel, but the king over him. I mean, you understand, if if you live in a country and you ain't the king, you've got a king over you. (laughs) Whenever he says, David, you'll be king and I'll be next to you. He's saying, David, you're my king. I bow before you. I lay my sword in front of you. David, I want you to rule over me. One of the greatest things we can do in our lives for our kids, for our grandkids, is for them to see us crown Jesus Christ the King of our lives and give Him the preeminence and make our life not about us, but all about Him. One of the greatest things your kids can ever see you do is submit to the will of God. Sometimes our flesh gets all riled up. We're embarrassed that that we've not been obedient to God's will, and then we don't want to become obedient to God's will. Sometimes we've made mistakes. We don't want to face them. Sometimes we're embarrassed. We, we want to save face and not lose standing in front of people. But I'll tell you the honest truth. One of the greatest things your kids will ever see you do is go to an altar. One of the greatest things your kids will ever see you do is bow the knee before the Lord. One of the greatest things your kids will ever see is you put that crown on His head. And in your life, don't be ashamed of doing that. To do so, hey... 2 Samuel 9 would have never happened without 1 Samuel chapter number 20. It was the repayment of a long, long ago debt that Jonathan and David, a covenant they had made with one another. And I'll tell you, you may not live to see the day when your child is lifted up out of load of bar and sat at the king's table. But you can rest in knowing if you've lived for the Lord that you've given to them the greatest gift that they could ever expect or receive and that you've done for them more than you could have done if you had if you had funneled all the energies of your life into temporal pursuits and to financial security and to emotional stability you've done more for them by loving jesus than you could have done in any other way here's my question in closing are we loving them the way that we ought to if we're not loving him the way we ought to then we're not loving them the way we ought to Won't you commit to consecrate your home to Christ and to be in loving the Lord Jesus, the parent, grandparent, aunt, uncle, whatever the nature of the relationship might be to the young people that God's blessed you with in your life. Let's bow together tonight. A musician's going to come and play. And I want to give you an opportunity to come and put that crown on his head. I want to give you the opportunity to come and consecrate your heart to him. I want to give you the opportunity to come and pledge your life to him. Father, bless this invitation. Lord, I love you. 
Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being patient with us. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us now in this invitation time that our hearts might be yielded to you. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Christ's name.